The Subways and Tunnels of New York, Methods and Costs, by Gilbert H. Gilbert. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 2. The Original Hudson Tunnel. In 1871, D.C. Haskins conceived the idea of building a tunnel under the Hudson River. In making a trip from the Pacific coast via Omaha, he had been struck with the system of building piers for a railway bridge over the Missouri River. This system was the forming of a caissons made up of a number of iron rings bolted together and constituting a cylinder which could be lengthened by the addition of rings as the caisson descended. Airlocks and compressed air were used, the material within the caisson being excavated by hand till a bedrock foundation was reached. From a study of this work, Mr. Haskins conceived the idea that iron cylinders fitted with airlocks could be placed horizontally and tubular tunnels under the Hudson River could be started from the bottom of a shaft by using compressed air to prevent the inflow of earth and water. As the material was excavated in front of the tunnel, the latter was to be advanced by the addition of rings of the diameter of the finished tube. Work on such a tunnel under the Hudson River to connect New Jersey and New York was commenced on the New Jersey side in November 1874. The bed of the Hudson is a silt deposit, which when dry is an impalpable powder, but when saturated with water is as fluid as quicksand. When a certain degree of moisture is carried by this material, it has a consistency approximating that of clay. This latter characteristic was taken advantage of by maintaining an air pressure in the heading equal to the hydrostatic head outside. When the material to be excavated formed a barrier against the entrance of water, thus permitting the heading to be advanced. The work began with sinking a shaft 38 feet in outside diameter lined with four feet of brickwork to a depth of 54 feet below mean high water. On opposite sides of the shaft, in the direction of the length of the tunnel, false pieces of elliptical form 26 feet high and 24 feet wide were built. These were to be removed to permit the passage of the tunnel. An airlock 6 feet in diameter by 15 feet long was attached to the shaft cylinder above the false piece on the east side. A temporary working entrance to the tunnel was formed of 11 rings, each 2 feet wide, but of different diameters. The tops of these rings were in the same horizontal line, forming a cone-shaped chamber with steps of 18 inches leading to the airlock. From the base of this cone, which was 20 feet in diameter, two parallel single-track tunnels were started. As the largest ring was not large enough to take in both tunnels, a ring of a diameter equal to the exterior of the north tunnel was built and lined with two feet of brickwork. Regular tunnel work was then commenced. So it was excavated till the top center plate of a new ring could be placed and bolted to the one behind. Then plates were bolted to either side of this top plate until the ring was completed. When four rings of plate equal to ten feet of section had been placed and the heading cleared out, the masonry was laid. The plates were of quarter-inch iron, two and one-half feet in width by three and one-half feet in length, flanged on all four sides with angle iron. The tunnels were 18 feet high by 16 feet wide, inside dimensions. The air pressure was kept about equal to the hydrostatic head, 
amounting to 18 pounds at the shaft and increasing to 36 pounds at a distance of 1,600 feet. No fixed rule could be given to govern the air pressure, but it was found generally that a little less than the hydrostatic pressure at the axis of the tunnel gave the best results under ordinary conditions. The excavated chamber was 23 feet in diameter, so that the difference of water pressure between the top and bottom of the chamber was about 11 pounds per square inch. Under these conditions, some air escaped through the roof and some water entered through the bottom. Excessive pressure resulted in an increased discharge of air through the roof, causing the silt to dry out and drop into the tunnel. If this mass was sufficient, a blowout and consequent flooding resulted. When the north tunnel had been advanced over a quarter of a mile, the south tunnel was started, and when this had been carried forward some distance, both tunnels were bulkheaded and work on the removal of the temporary entrance was commenced. A serious blowout occurred in July 1880. The doors of the airlocks had become wedged by falling earth and plates, cutting off the escape of the men, 20 of whom were drowned. This accident had an unfavorable effect upon the financial aspect of the undertaking. The New York end was started by sinking a timber caisson 48 by 29 and one half feet to a depth of 56 feet below high water, where it was fully embedded in sand. Through the west side of this caisson, on the line of the tunnel, an opening was cut and roof plates of the tunnel put in and braced. Plates were added till a section 12 feet long had been built when an iron bulkhead was constructed. In building additional sections, the same system was adopted. As each section of the iron tube was completed, it was cleaned out and the brick lining laid. This was the first and only instance of building a subaqueous tunnel in sand without the aid of a shield. S. Pearson and Son of England assumed the contract in 1888. Sir John Fowler and Sir Benjamin Baker acted as consulting engineers. The shield method of driving was adopted and heavy iron plates were substituted for masonry. The light boiler plate lining was no longer required. The work was stopped through lack of capital and unsuccessful attempts were made at various times to resume the operations until the early part of 1902. In that year, the franchise and property of the tunnel company were acquired by the New York and New Jersey Railroad Company, and operations were again started. In 1905, the New York and New Jersey Railroad Company disposed of their interests in the Hudson Company, who have since completed the tunnels. The completion of this work, which is now known as the McAdoo system, is described in another chapter. End of The Subways and Tunnels of New York, Methods and Cost by Gilbert H. Gilbert Read by Chad Sawyer